So John chapter 3. When I was in Nepal, I spoke on this passage once and I thought, and I think, I think it preaches well no matter where you are, there or here or in some other place even. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I'm going to go through probably all the way to verse 16. Rather than just reading 16 verses right now and then backtracking and launching into it again, I'm just going to, I'm going to take this a few verses at a time or a verse at a time and, and make some comments, try to open it up, and we'll build on this thing and we'll keep going. But what jumps out at you? That's, that's what I'm looking for. When I read portions of Scripture like this, it's, I, I don't want to invent things. I want to ask, what, what is being said? What ought to jump out at us? And if there's anything that jumps out, well, there's several things that jump out right here. One thing is the word we. Notice verse 2. So you got Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We. And, and what I find very interesting about this is that when you go down to verse 11, look, look how Jesus answers. Truly, truly, I say to you, and there it is again, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Well, you know what? This is a conversation between two guys. You have one guy over here and you have one guy over here. And yet, isn't it interesting that the pronoun, a plural pronoun gets thrown out here? It's like, it's like there's two groups, not just two guys. There's two groups. Well, who do you think we is? I mean, the, the natural thing would be to say, well, if Nicodemus is using that pronoun, He's, maybe he's talking about the other Pharisees. But you know what? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Think about just a few chapters later in, say, John 9. You know what? When they brought that man that was blind, who now sees, and they brought him to the Pharisees, did the Pharisees jump right on board and all say, hey, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, or hey, we believe Jesus is from God? You know what they said? We know where Moses is from. We don't know where this guy's from. So who's, who's Nicodemus even talking about here? The Pharisees didn't seem like as a whole that they knew all of Is this like the royal? See, we don't, we don't really have this royalty thing. You ever notice how a queen or a king will say, we or our? And it's, what do they call that? It's like a royal we. When, when they really mean me or I, they use we. Why do they do that? Anyways, that, is that what's going on here? And then Jesus, when he says, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, 
Anyway, you just hit, yeah, it's almost like, I mean, you might think, well, Jesus is talking about he and his father, or he and the father and the spirit. I mean, it's just interesting. It never really gets defined for us, but it's like you have plurality on both sides, even though you have just two men in this conversation. That, that jumps out at me. So, then there's this. Now think about it. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, so he uses a respectful term. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Well, isn't that interesting? I mean, he's making a very positive statement. He's not talking like the Pharisees talk to Jesus a lot of times with reproach and mocking and total disrespect. This is very respectful, isn't it? We know you're a teacher come from God. Well, he is. I mean, Nicodemus isn't off there. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You know what? He speaks truth about Jesus. He makes a nice statement about him. Isn't that nice? Is it rude or is it nice? Tell me. Come on, British people. I've been here three years. It's nice. It's nice. How would Jesus respond? Would, would you expect, you know what? Don't we typically have, have an expectation that when somebody says something nice to you that you're going to respond in like kind, right? It's, it's like, it seems Jesus just abruptly changes the subject here. And he comes back with a, a strong statement. It's almost like, well, we know you've come from God. You're a teacher come from God. And Jesus, he just cuts to the chase here. Bang! It's almost like he says, you call me a teacher come from God? Okay, I've got a message to teach you from God. And here it is. Verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And it's like this kind of comes out of nowhere. It's, it's like Nicodemus comes to him. Obviously, Nicodemus came to ask some questions. Now, we, you could look at this and say, Jesus knows what's in the heart of all men. He knew why he came. He knew what was the depths of his real deepest inquiries. What, what was it that he really wanted to know? Maybe that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Or maybe, maybe Nicodemus doesn't even know what to, what to ask. And Jesus is just going to deal with the thing that is most necessary. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I think this is very interesting. Right at the beginning, you know what he doesn't say? Nicodemus, unless you are born again. He says, unless one. You know what that does? You know what the word O-N-E does? It doesn't let any of us in this room sit as spectators. You know what that means? Not just you, Nicodemus, but anyone and everybody. Nicodemus, there's no special cases. Everyone has to be born again or they will not see, they will not inherit, they will not enter the kingdom. Bottom line. Unless this happens, you can't see the kingdom. In verse 5, it says you can't enter the kingdom. You know what that means? What's the kingdom? The kingdom is heaven. If you are not born again, you will go to hell. That's exactly what he's saying. He's, 
He's not mincing words here. You cannot enter the kingdom. You know what this means? There's nothing more important than this. Nothing more important. Only one way in. Unless you're born again. This is life and death. This is heaven and hell. That's what we're dealing with here. It all, it all comes down to this. Nicodemus, there is a way to heaven, and it is by being born again. And if you're not born again, you will not enter. You will not see this kingdom. You'll see something else, but not this kingdom. You cannot enter. Wow. And then, you know what? I mean, we kind of passed over this, that he's a Pharisee. And you know what? John wants us to know it. In verse 1, he says, a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. John makes certain that we know Nicodemus is just exactly this. He's a Pharisee. Any reason we need to know that? I'll tell you one good reason why it is really important to know that. Why? What was a Pharisee? You see, today we tend to look at Pharisees as like they've got devil horns and they walk around as these horrific hypocrites. You see, we see them as ungodly. Why? Because we know the Scriptures and we didn't live in that day. But you know what? If you lived in that day, you know what a Pharisee was like to you? Just like the Pope was to me when I was a Catholic. These guys were religious as it gets. These guys were teachers of the law. These guys were the guys that sat in Moses' seat. These are the guys that people looked at that if there was anyone holy, these guys were. These guys were the epitome of religion. That's why it's important to know that. Pharisees were the most important, the most religious people on the planet. And you remember the guy when he's comparing himself to the tax collector. He said, I fast twice in the week. I give alms. He wasn't lying. That's what they did. These guys prayed. These guys fasted. These guys gave alms. These guys were teachers in Israel. And everybody knew it. And they walked around with their long beards and their long robes, and they looked the part. And if somebody was going to say, you want to be as holy as the holiest people around, well, you'd compare yourself with these guys. And yet, isn't it interesting? For all his religion, for all of his notable position as a Jew, guess what he doesn't need? He doesn't need any more religion. He needs life. That's what's happening here. You can, and, and you know what? The reason that this is so important for us to know is because there's some of you here, you don't need more religion. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to take the Lord's Supper. You need to be born again. And you may be religious. You may be the most religious among us. You may have been the longest standing person involved in this church. You may have a history that goes beyond everybody else. You may show up faithfully on the Lord's Day. This guy was faithful. This guy would have been faithful to the synagogue. This guy would have been faithful to his tithes, to his offerings, to his almsgiving, to his fasting, to his praying, to his teaching, to his memorizing Scripture. 
this guy would have been right down the line as far as cleanness and not eating unclean food and striving. And He needed spiritual birth. He didn't need more church. And you know what the thing about Nicodemus is? It, he actually believed some good things. It's like, to a certain degree, he believed the truth. Did he believe that Jesus was a teacher? Yes. Did he believe that he was a teacher come from God? Yes. Did he believe he was a miracle worker? Yes. Did he believe that the miracles Jesus did were from God? Yes. Wow, he believed a lot of accurate things. And yet Jesus is not congratulating him. He's telling him, you lack the most important thing. You know what? Jesus did do miracles, and he did do miracles by God. But you know what Jesus is telling him? Nicodemus, you know what? What you need is not so much to know that I'm a miracle worker or to know that the miracles I do, I do by the power of God. Nicodemus, you need a miracle done to you. And unless that miracle happens to you, you're going to perish. That's what's happening here. Brethren, I'll tell you this. I am very concerned as churches deny the supernatural. Because what this tells us, listen, to see something happen like happened to Lilia, where you have a husband that has these certain concerns and suddenly sees this transformation, that is supernatural. That is being born again. We need the miraculous in the church. When we start despising that and sweeping it out the back door, that is not a good thing. There is a massive danger of churches losing the miraculous. We need God to do such things. This birth is nothing but supernatural, folks. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now notice that. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, nothing here can make this happen. It takes the Spirit, God's Spirit only. That's it. Nothing in this world can cause somebody to be born again. The question is not simply whether you've come to believe certain things like Nicodemus did about Jesus, but has the Spirit done this miracle in you? You see, every one of us have to ask this. If the Spirit has not done this miracle that Jesus says to Nicodemus, this has to happen to you. And if it doesn't happen to you, you're not going to see the kingdom. I'll tell you why this is so applicable. Because we've got a room here of, you know what I mean by religious people. Religi Anybody out in the world would consider us religious people. Why? Because religious people are con they're con conceived of as, as people who come to church, people who uh, talk about God, people who tote their Bibles around. I mean, as far as the world's concerned, I mean, whatever you think, you may not like the term religious. But what we've got is somebody like Nicodemus with all of his religion. And you know what? He needed something more. And it's true of every one of us as well. You cannot just decide to become religious and think that all of a sudden everything is going to be okay. It takes a miracle. It takes being born again. It takes a second birth. It takes a new birth. It takes what we call regeneration. New creation. That's what's being talked about here. Nothing in this world can do this. And so the question for each one of us is this. Has the Spirit done this miracle to you? 
Listen, for you, there is nothing more important than being able to answer that question in the affirmative. And look, anybody can just say it. Well, yes, it happened to me. So, you know what? You know why many people will say that it happened to them? Because they don't understand what it is. They think religion is being born again. No, 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 no. This man was religious. This man had all the pieces of religion. He looked the part. Pharisees dressed a certain way. They walked a certain way. They talked a certain way. They had a certain look to them. They did certain things. He had all that. He was determined. Trying to find God. Trying to find the kingdom. But you know what? Something was missing. Notice verse 7. You must be born again. Now think about that. Think about just those two words. Born again. That means we all obviously were born once. Whether it was C-section, whether it was natural birth, I don't think anybody here was created in a test tube and raised the entire time. We all sprang forth one way or another from our mother's womb. We were born the first time. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. We were born of the flesh. Physically born of our mothers. You know what Jesus is saying again? Now, after that's happened, if you're going to enter heaven, a second birth has to happen to you. Born once, then somehow born a second time. Second birth. And, and here's the thing. Jesus would not be speaking about being born again unless somehow the second birth was like being born the first time. Because he's, it's a birth. He doesn't call it something else. We're born the first time, and then somehow we have to be born a second time. And, and the thing is... <clears throat> It's got, it's got to resemble it. Yes, the first one is of the flesh. The second one is spiritual. But somehow there's got to be some parallels. If you're going to call the second one a birth, then somehow it has something that resembles the first birth. Something in there. And, and look, at Nicodemus totally grasps what's being said here. He said, look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Well, he gets it. He gets that Jesus says another birth has to happen. And Nicodemus is a, obviously been born once. And he's wondering, how do I do it? I mean, look, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So think about what does the first birth look like? Child, he's there in the dark. He's... And not a lot of freedom. That baby's getting pretty big usually. They're seven pounds, eight pounds, nine pounds, ten pounds. Bigger and bigger. It's getting tight in there. You've seen mamas and when they're in the ninth month and it doesn't look very comfortable. That baby's ready to pop out. of That baby is just bound up. It, and think, it's dark in there. Held fast in in, in, in the tightness and darkness of the womb. And then that baby 
slides down that birth canal, and bang, springs out into the light. The doctor slaps him, or the midwife slaps him, and suddenly there's a gasp of breath, and the baby is cut the umbilical cord, and now this baby is free, and it's all over the place, and there's life, and it's an experience. And you know what? Everybody in the house knows that baby has come. Why? Because now there's crying, and there's all this. And, and you know what the thing is? Totally beyond the control of the baby. The baby did not make it happen. The baby did not conceive itself. The baby's opinion was not sought. The baby's will was not sought. This all happens to it, and that's how it is. New life, bang, springs forth, totally beyond the control of the one being born. It's just a massive change. The baby went from being constricted and dark, and now it's out, and it's, it's breathing, it's gasping for breath change of such magnitude. Can it be undone? No baby climbs back into the womb and goes back up again. Oh, it's true that maybe a hand comes out and goes back and they tie a little rib, you know, ribbon on it so that you know which one was born first when it's twins. But nobody gets born and then, and then the baby crawls back up. That doesn't happen. This is, a, this is totally a radical experience. It's just a baby comes suddenly there's hunger, not, not drawing nutrients from the umbilical cord anymore. Now the baby wants to eat. There's a profound newness. It's a beginning, something altogether different, something altogether fresh, something altogether real. Some, I, it's just, you know what birth is? And that's a picture here. You hear its cry. There's evidence that this baby has come forth. Things are never the same again for it. That's physical birth. And so Jesus says, okay, you know what that's like? Yep. Now something spiritually like that, spiritually, has to happen by the Spirit, not by your mama, not by your daddy and mama. This happens by the Spirit of God, and it is a spiritual birth. But it's called a birth because it's like that. So many parallels between it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born in the Spirit is spirit. Born again is to be born in the Spirit. It's a spiritual reality. It's called a birth. Because it just it's like that natural birth in so many ways. How? Brethren, the sinner is not held fast by mama's womb. We were held fast by the chains of the devil. You remember how it says, we're held captive by him. We're held captive to sin. We're in the bonds, the chains. How do we sing? The chains fell off, the dungeon filled with light. There was darkness. We were in the darkness, not of mama's womb. We were in the darkness of the domain of the evil one. We were in that kingdom. There was, there was dark sin of Chains of sin in, in the darkness. Egyptian night we sing about in one of the songs. And then what happens? Beyond the control of us, just like with the first birth, beyond the control of us, suddenly we slide down this birth canal and spring out. And what happens? There's suddenly light. Why? Because God says, let there be light. There's no physical womb, but somehow, suddenly we can see. Suddenly we're awake. Suddenly it, it's... And it's beyond the control of any man. It's beyond the control of you, me. 
The sinner breaks forth. Suddenly we come out into the light. We begin to breathe like that baby is a gas for life. We suddenly breathe. Brother Andy talks about the, the breath of the Christian being prayer. We suddenly start to pray. We suddenly start to have an awareness that, that God is there. There's this freedom in Christ, like the baby out of the womb now can, can, it can flail its arms and kick all over the place, and it can, it can use and exercise its lungs. Now we're out, we're exercising our lungs, we begin to call, Abba, Father, it becomes just, it, it's natural to us, all the free air that we begin to breathe. It's, it's, it's an eternal freedom, eternal life. There's a freedom in Christ. There's a hunger. Just like that baby physically has a hunger. Now we hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know what scripture says? There's a newness. There's a freshness in Christ. Everything is new. I remember, you remember how the songwriter says that the, the skies are softer blue, that the, the grass is, is a greener, greener. How does this happen? Uh, anyways, I'm not getting that exactly right. Suddenly everything looked different. We feel it. We feel it. We've been born. And it feels good, right? Suddenly we're, it's radical birth. It can never be undone. Spiritually, we can never climb back into the womb of, of the darkness of sin and the devil. We can't go backwards. Nobody climbs back into the darkness of a mother's womb, nor do, nor do they, the boy again, climb back somehow into the mother's womb. It's, it, it just, brethren, there's parallels here. Sin, death, darkness, we're, we're out of that. We've been birthed from it. We can't be unborn. Can't be, look, look, there are parallels. You can't be any more unborn spiritually than you can be unborn physically. It just doesn't happen. And brethren, the thing to ask is this, have you experienced this? I mean, can you look at the experiences in your life and recognize, yep, I mean, I was born the first time and I don't remember it. Neither do you. Don't say you do, because you don't. But, at some point later, did something like that? Because here's the thing, as we get older, we can certainly look at what it means for somebody to be birthed. Has that happened spiritually to us where we sprang forth out of that darkness, out of that restriction? Now we're free in Christ. Now we breathe. We can, oh, our eyes are open. We can see it was dark in there in the womb of sin and death and darkness. But now we're in the light. Do you know this? Have you experienced this? Listen, your soul hangs on this. This is, this is not optional. Have you experienced that? That is being born of the Spirit. And it's be, just like the first birth, it's beyond your control. It's something God does to you. It's not something you decide that you're going to do. That's, that's clearly what he's saying. That's clearly what he's teaching. And I'm not talking religion. I'm not asking you whether you've been religious. I'm not asking you whether you decided to go to church or whether you were raised in a Christian home and you've just been going to church ever since because that's what your parents wanted you to do. You've been religious. You've been trying to work this whole thing out. Has this miracle happened to you? Because if it hasn't, it doesn't matter how much religious you are. It doesn't matter how much you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter how much scripture you know. How much you can say about Jesus that's true like Nicodemus does. Without this, you will not enter the kingdom. That's what Jesus teaches. No heaven for you. Over in John 6, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
<clears throat> so, here's the thing. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, we have to have this second birth. We have to be born again. We have to be born of the Spirit. Here, it says born of water and the Spirit. Unless you have that, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, many have been taught that by baptism, you're born again. I, I was a nominal Catholic. That's a prevalent teaching. Baptismal regeneration, we were just, uh, you all had a Nepali brother visit the church here. When we met his physical brother over in Kathmandu, John and Joel and I had a probably two-hour sit-down with him. And he goes to a Pentecostal church over there in Kathmandu where they believe in baptismal regeneration. This is very common. But it's not baptism. Look, verse 5 is not teaching that we're born again by baptism. And, and I'm going to give you some reasons that ought to convince you that's not what it's talking about. And the first reason is this. Nothing said about baptism here, folks. I mean, sometimes we just have to take Scripture at face value. Look, there is a word for immersion or for baptism. And it's not the one used here. And, and the thing is, if this is so important, like if this is the key to the kingdom, is Jesus just going to offhandedly mention it? Not even say baptism, but just say water and not come back to it ever again? Not develop it? Not make an argument for it? I hardly think so. If baptism is so important, why doesn't Jesus elaborate? But here's the second thing that ought to convince you. This is not baptism. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know what? The Spirit is like the wind. Wind does what it wills, what it wishes. It's almost like Jesus describes wind as having a mind of its own. But you know what he's saying? He's, he's saying the wind is free. You don't control it. But here's the problem. We control baptism. You see what he's teaching here? When the Spirit causes somebody to be born again, it's like the wind. You can see the effect, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't control the laws governing it. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going. You can't see it. But you know what? We can see baptism, and we're in control of that. Well, what this is saying is we're not in control of this birth, this spiritual birth. We're no more in control of it than we're in control of the wind. That would be the second reason. The third reason is, look at verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you... Now, the, most translations say, the teacher. I know that the KJV says, a master. But most take the article here as meaning he's like one of the most prominent teachers in Israel. Whatever way you take it, the fact is he's a teacher in Israel. He's a master in Israel. And yet you do not understand these things. In other words, this is really stretching Nicodemus. The teacher is expected to know what? 
I mean, if you're a teacher in Israel, what are you expected to know? The Old Testament scriptures. But you know what? There's nothing in the Old Testament scriptures that talks about being baptized as, as the way into the kingdom. What Jesus was doing was he was saying, look, you're a teacher in Israel. You ought to know the Old Testament scriptures. And if you knew them, you would know that you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Really? Where does the Old Testament speak about being born of water and the Spirit? Well, if you are all paying attention during the Lord's Supper, you probably have some idea. It's where the Old Testament talks about the New Covenant. Let's look at it real quick. Ezekiel 36. There is a place in the Old Testament where we find both water and Spirit in the same passages that speak about God causing people to be changed, to be recreated, to become altogether new. Now in the New Testament, it's called this, the washing of regeneration. That comes from Titus. But in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, this got brought up. I think Abed brought this up. But notice what it says. I will sprinkle, this is Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle, Sprinkle clean water on you. Now, I know it doesn't speak about being born, but Jesus is creating that imagery. Clearly, what needs to happen is a radical change by God in our lives. And you see the water. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now, that's not physical. That is a spiritual reality. Because notice what this water does. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And you will be cleansed from all your idols. I will cleanse you. You see, there's an idea that something spiritually happens that's cleansing away the dirt and the filth of our lives, our idolatries. This stuff is being washed away. There's this change. God is purifying us. God is sanctifying us. Change. We need to be new, not just forgiven. There's a heart. And notice there's a heart transplant here. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit will I put within you. I will remove the heart of stone. We talked about that from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. So you see, just in these verses, we have the idea of water and His Spirit. I will put my Spirit and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey, obey my rules. Nicodemus, you hear what I'm saying? Before you're born again, you have this hard heart. It's hard. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel anything for Christ. It's hard towards him. There's no attraction there. And what happens is there's a new birth. And with the new birth, there's suddenly a washing, uncleanness, my sinful disposition, my old desires and lust. Suddenly sin does not have the dominion over me that it used to have. There's a freedom, my hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'm set free. I can now truly do good. I can truly do right. I'm truly been transferred to another kingdom. 
I now am a child of light. Nicodemus, you should have known this. Having a heart that's now soft towards God, soft towards his commandments, that has, there's an inner compulsion to keep his statutes, to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey them. It's like John says, if we say we know him and we don't keep his commandments, we're liars and the truth isn't in us. Suddenly there's this, this radical transformation. Suddenly his, his, sin, his commandments are not grievous to us anymore. That's again First John. Nicodemus, don't you know it? You're a teacher in Israel. You should have known about Ezekiel 36. How is it that you didn't know that? Nicodemus, what have you been teaching Israel? You're the teacher and you don't know about the... Isn't it amazing? Brethren, I'll tell you the darkness that was pervasive in Israel at the time Jesus came. You recognize how lost Israel was? You need to recognize they need to be born again. And by and large, they were not. And even the teachers there, they did not know these things. And look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wills. It's got a mind of its own. It's free. The wind is free. You can't see it, but you can see what it does. You can see the effects. The wind comes blowing. You don't know how it got here. You don't know what drove that wind. You could say, well, it came off the Atlantic or it did this, that, or the other thing. But you don't know how it, you don't know God's ways. You can see it when it blows the, the old autumn leaves off the trees and they, they fly across in front of you when you're driving your car. Or you see them go in front of your window when you're looking out and the wind's blowing out there. You can see the effect, but you don't see the wind. You don't know where it came from. Nicodemus, that's, that, that's exactly what needs to happen to you in the spiritual realm. We don't determine the laws that control the wind and we don't determine the laws that control the spirit. You know what? The spirit causes men to be born again. You didn't plan it. You didn't designate it. You didn't do it. It wasn't because you baptized somebody. It wasn't any of that. It happens where God wills that it happens. And here's the thing, like the wind, the spirit freely blows on those he desires to birth into the kingdom. No, you know what? Nobody's born by the will of man. You know how I know that? Because that's what Scripture says. Doesn't it say back in John 1, just two chapters before this, that we're born how? Not of what? Not of the will of man. Not of the will of flesh. But of the will of God. It's not of blood. That was, that's the first thing. It's not, not of bloodlines. It's not because you're born into a Christian family. It's not because your family told you you were saved at a certain time or they had you baptized or sprinkled or whatever happens. It's not the blood. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. It happens because of God. And, and you know what? When it happens, my will gets involved. See, my will doesn't make it happen. His will does. It's by His will. But once He causes it to happen, my will's affected because what happens? My will will then follow Christ. Christ all of a sudden made desirable to me. You know what? When we were lost, you know what? We had a good time not coming. Any of you there? Drinking, hanging out with my buddies, chasing after all your idols and all your lusts and all your stuff. Well, that felt good. It felt free. It wasn't free. 
but the Spirit blows upon us. And what happens? Our resistance is conquered. Before, there was nothing appealing about Christ. Nothing made us want to come. But when the Spirit blows on us, you know the effect you look for? Is suddenly people's eyes light up. Suddenly, they're running around the house singing like George was talking about. Suddenly, there's a glory in the hymns of Zion. Suddenly, this is, there's happiness in all of this. My will now moves towards Jesus Christ because the Spirit has touched my will. The Spirit's made me alive. The Spirit's caused me to be born again. And here's the thing, like the wind, the Spirit freely blows on those He desires to birth into the kingdom. And I'll tell you this, if He doesn't desire to birth you into the kingdom, you will not be birthed into the kingdom. It's like the wind. Totally like that. No one is born by the will of man. That's what John 1, 12 and 13 say. No one is born by the will of man. It doesn't happen. Our will gets affected when it's the will of God that we be born again. Spirit brings spiritual new birth and life and the miracle of recreation only to those whom He determines to bring it to. And here's the thing. This thing, this thing that is out of my control has to happen to me or I'm going to die and justly perish in my sin. This thing must happen to me. You see it there in verse 7? You must be born again. If you would see the kingdom, if you would enter the kingdom, this must happen to you. I would say this, are you intent on getting to heaven? I hope you are. Are you intent on obtaining eternal rest? Would you escape the just damnation of God for your sins? And there's one absolutely unmistakable unavoidable condition. You, you must be born again. It doesn't matter if I'm born again. That doesn't help you. It doesn't matter if your parents are born again. That doesn't help you. Other than the fact that they're sources of light. But that doesn't cause you to be born again. You must be born again. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor. Whether you're educated, whether you're smart, whether you're not. You must be born again. You must be. It doesn't work for you if somebody else... This is not optional, folks. This has to happen to you. A miracle of God has to happen to you. And it's out of your control. Unless the Spirit blows on you, it's over. This is not optional. How are you all feeling about that? Well, look, this is what Jesus is teaching. You can't get away from it. It's like the wind. It is a mind of its own. It is a free will. Yours isn't free. This is not by the will of man. It's by the will of God. So, why would some be thrilled at this teaching and some are very unsettled? Some feel very threatened by this doctrine. Why would that be? I'll tell you, if, you, if you're in the place where you just recognize, I'm helpless. I don't have the ability to fix myself. I need God to do something. Well, you know what? Be thrilled by this. That you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and that God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he comes and makes us alive in Christ. That is a very... I mean, that is a glorious doctrine to me. 
and I'm sure to some of you as well. But you know what? It'll threaten people who want to be in control. I don't like this. I want to be in control. I don't like the fact that God's in control. You know one thing this teaches us? God is totally free. That man. I am. You know what it teaches us? I am totally at God's mercy. Totally. If he doesn't choose me, I'm damned. That's unsettling. I must have this certain experience that only God can give in order for me to enter the kingdom of God. But I'm totally incapable of making this happen to myself. Trouble anyone? And some are troubled. Some are troubled. Because you call yourself a Christian. But you know what? You just do not know whether this has happened to you. It's not something you can make happen by coming to church or trying to live a good life or you make this profession of faith. You recognize this? You must be born into genuine Christianity. Not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man. Pretty unsettling to our human pride. But you know what Jesus is doing here? He's confronting Nicodemus and hitting him straight between the eyes. As with every one of us. Just about how hopeless our spiritual condition is in ourselves. We've got to have God do a miracle to us. You see how Jesus confronts us with our hopelessness? You see how bad our spiritual condition is? There's an experience I've got to have or I'm going to perish. It's not something I do. It's something God has to do to me. Not by my will, but by the will of God. You know what it confronts us with? Oh, my absolute dependence on God. And the absolute freedom of God. He is free. Listen to this. You know this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And notice what he says to Nicodemus next. I mean, to make things even worse. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Notice what he says to Nicodemus. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You know, you know what jumps out at me? The word receive in verse 11 and the word believe in verse 12. You know why they jump out at me? Because just two chapters before this, it says this, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, isn't that interesting? You see, somebody is born of God if they receive Christ and believe in him. If the very two words that it says have to describe us, Jesus just said, you do not receive, you do not believe. 
You see what category Jesus puts Nicodemus in? It's like, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You can't make that happen. It happens like the wind blows. You don't believe. You don't receive. And really, that's where we're all at by nature. So what do we do? Where do we go? We don't receive. We don't believe. We're dead in sins. We can't birth ourselves into this kingdom. What am I supposed to do? You know what I'm thankful for? That the account doesn't end right here. And Jesus just says something like, so Nicodemus, there's really no hope for you. Go home until the Spirit does something to you. Then come back and we can talk. And then he goes on to chapter 4 and meeting the woman at the well. Aren't you thankful he doesn't stop? It's like, you can imagine Nicodemus. You know how he felt? Same way we feel. Don't think because the guy lived 2,000 years ago that he doesn't, he's not made of the same stuff we are. Listen, when he heard this, especially as a religious guy, who all the time was thinking he's got to earn his way to heaven, he's got to do all these things, he's got to be this good, upstart, upstanding uh, Pharisee and do all these things and keep the Old Testament law. And now he's hearing this. Listen, this made him feel the same way it makes us feel. He's confused, he's helpless, he's amazed. He's like, what? How can this be? It's like you're a teacher. You've never even been confronted by this. No, none of us have. It's like, where is this coming from? Now, he didn't deny that he knew Ezekiel 36, but it's like, what is all this? And you know what? Jesus is not ignorant. Jesus knows the despair such a teaching is going to lead us to. He knows what this is going to do to Nicodemus in his mind. He knows the helplessness of man. He knows the discouragement that this teaching might lead us into. But you know what? Jesus never came to leave men without hope. So what does he say? Where does he go? Listen, he came to give hope. And that's why I'm so glad that account doesn't end right there. Because it's like, Brethren, don't you feel this when you're trying to deal with your children? You're trying to deal with your lost neighbors? You're trying to deal with people? It seems like the more you deal with them, the harder they get. And you feel helpless. You feel discouraged. You recognize God's got to do a miracle in them. I can't do it. Brethren, Jesus came to give hope. But I'll tell you this, he came to dash every hope in ourselves. And that's what this teaching does. There's no hope in ourselves. The doctrine of the new birth just dashes my hope of saving self. And, but that's a perfect place to be. It's when I feel powerless. It's when I feel empty that there is hope for me. Now that Nicodemus is so puzzled and so perplexed and so stripped of all of his, his own ideas about how to get into the kingdom, self-confidence has just been shredded, which is what it ought to do to every one of us. But then what? Suddenly in the whole story here, there's a shift. Jesus, Jesus doesn't give up on Nicodemus. How do I know? Look at verse 13. Jesus might have said, you're dead. You're not born again. You're not believing. You're not receiving. There's no hope for you. Go wait for the Spirit to move on you like the wind. But he doesn't. We know God's going to cause us to be born again. So what can we do? If Nicodemus hasn't responded to all of this yet and he's still not receiving, he's not believing, he's all perplexed, 
Where's Jesus going to go next? Well, let's watch. You know what's very interesting up to this point? Jesus has said nothing about himself. Like what he came to do. He's been talking about the fact that we must be born of the Spirit. But he hasn't talked about what he came to do. Not, not a word about it yet. And then there's a shift. Verse 13. No longer is Jesus talking about what needs to happen to Nicodemus and to you and me. He shifts to what he's going to do. Why? Because the way the Spirit works to cause us to be born again is by directing the attention of our minds to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Textual issue, KJV says, who is in heaven. Now, it seems like the link to verse 12 the, the, the flow from 12 is that what's he saying? He says if I have told you earthly things you do not believe. In other words, I've been telling you about what has to happen on the earth to you by the Spirit. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And now he's lining up to tell them heavenly things. And that's where 13 comes in. It seems like heaven is the connection. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And now I'm going to tell you about heavenly things. Now I'm going to tell you, Nicodemus, why I came from heaven. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And I will, Nicodemus. I've been there. I came from there. I had glory there with my Father before this world began. And I'm equipped to teach you heavenly things. And here they are. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. I'm, I'm trying to put myself in Nicodemus's shoes. It's like you come in, oh, we believe you've come from God, and you're a teacher from God, and you do your miracles from God. Bang! You've got to be born of the Spirit. Whoa, where'd that come from? And suddenly he's, he's wrestling with all of this, and then he's just coming along to feel like, man, this is hopeful. The wind blows where it will, and what am I supposed to do? Nothing. It's like Jesus is just taking everything out of my hands. It's like, and then suddenly he's going to launch him back into the book of Numbers with this brazen serpent. It's like, if you're Nicodemus, it's like, how did we just get here? What does this have to do with all of it? Nicodemus knows the story. Obviously, he does. And, and notice, notice, there was a brazen serpent put on a pole. Jesus is likening himself to a snake that was hung there. You notice how Jesus is just in charge of the whole conversation. He's just leading this exactly where it needs to go. Nicodemus, you know what you need to think about right now? You need to think about what happened out there in the wilderness. As we're thinking about being born again, he's going to suddenly shift Nicodemus's mind where it needs to go. What happened in Numbers 21? You know the story. It was common with the Jews out in the wilderness. What were they doing? They were grumbling. They were upset. They didn't like it. They were finding fault with Moses. They were finding fault with the Lord. And you know what God did? He sent fiery serpents to bite the people. And it says a lot of the people died. But then they cried out for mercy. Isn't it amazing in Scripture when people cry out for mercy how God gives mercy? 
And what did he do? What, ha- what happened then? Listen to the story. The people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God, against Moses. Why have you brought us out of the Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. What happened back then? God's holy indignation, His fury, His wrath is being directed against these people. Why? Because of their sin. And then what does God do? He makes a provision for these people that are dying because of God's curse on them, God's wrath directed at them because they sinned and offended God and now they're asking for mercy. And what does God do? He makes provision for these dying people. What's He doing? He's reversing His wrath. He sent the serpents. And now he says, okay, I'm extending mercy. If you will look at this serpent, you'll live. Wow. You'll be rescued from the curse. All they have to do is look. You get bit by the serpent. They were all getting bit. Then he died. These people had poison coursing through their veins. They were going to die. And all they had to do was look. And you know what Jesus is saying, Nicodemus? You know why that story was back there? You know what God was doing? God's showing you what it's like. I'm going to tell you heavenly things, Nicodemus. I came from glory to be the snake on the stick. And one look, and there it is. Jesus is in the place of the snake. He it is we must look at to live. The snake, that snake, snakes were cursed all the way back in the garden. Anyway, he became a curse for us, hung on that tree, made sin. People cried out for mercy, and God showed mercy. This is our only hope. Brethren, we come into this world snake-bitten. We're cursed. We got the venom coursing through us. This is our only hope. Look and live. See, wait. No hell. All God's wrath is gone. Death is taken away from us. This is what Jesus has to say to Nicodemus and to us. I mean, we thought we thought we had to sit down and like wait for the Spirit to do something. Yeah, but Jesus never said that. He said, Nicodemus, here's the thing. You see how he's connecting this? Nicodemus, if God says to you, look at that serpent and you will live, and you have ears to hear, and you look, you'll live. You'll have life. You say, wait, I thought we had to be born again to enter the kingdom. Now you're saying we have to look it's not the serpent anymore. It's Jesus lifted up. Yep. Agony's in the garden. Sweat as it were, great drops of blood. Took that agony, was scourged, put on trial. Yep. Facing that cross, facing the sun and the darkness. Why, under that darkness, 
God would forsake him. If you'll look at that, you will live. I mean, I thought we had to be born again. You do. Now you're saying you have to look. You know what Scripture says? Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. You see, we, it told us we have to be born the second time. We have to be born in the Spirit. Now you're saying we look and we're going to be saved. For I am God and there is none else. All you have to do is look. You see, there's a connection with Jesus in all of this. There's a connection with Jesus and being born again. Have you ever read things like this? These signs. You remember how John taught when you get to the end of John's gospel? You know what? Jesus did many signs. I've recorded these signs so that when you see these things, you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now listen, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father. You say, wait, I thought we had to get this life from the Spirit. I thought the Spirit, like the wind, had to blow. That's exactly right. But you see what the Spirit does is the Spirit holds up Christ like a serpent on a pole. And you know what? You know the greatest proof you've been born again? Your faith. You know what Scripture says? You can tell all of those who have been born of God how their faith overcomes the world. Their faith in Christ. It's always faith in Christ. It's not this nebulous, ambiguous thing. It's faith in the crucified Son of God. You see, you never want to separate the two. The key is never separate them. There's no spiritual life apart from Jesus Christ. He's the life. So, wait, so which is it? Well, it's both. Do we have life being born again? Yes. Do we have life by believing in Christ? Yes. And Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. You know, the work of the Spirit is to do what? He takes our dead eyes. And Christ gets lifted up before us. And for the first time in our life, you know how it says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4? The same way God says in the beginning, let there be light. It's like Christ gets lifted up before us. <laughs> Remember what it was like when you were lost? Christ was boredom. Nothing was attractive about that. Give me a party. Give me some alcohol. Give me some speed. Give me a fast car, a fast motorcycle. Give me skiing in the mountains. Give me a gun. Let me go hunting. Jesus Christ is a swear word. That's the, what, there's nothing excites me about that. Do you know what happens to you? Suddenly he's lifted up. You know you've been born of God because suddenly for the first time, you know what the Spirit does to you? It's not like the wind where your hair blows backwards. That's what the wind does. What the Spirit does is suddenly our eyes behold a glory and a beauty and a confidence and a need to be saved that way. 
Suddenly our hope is there. Suddenly this is everything we needed. That's what happens. Suddenly, ah, oh, it's like that baby that comes forth and he takes that first breath. There's a fragrance of Christ in the air. Our ears, my sheep, hear my voice. Like for the first time, you know what it was like? You remember what it was like? Anybody remember what it was like? You tried to read the Bible when you were lost. It was so dry and disinteresting. Suddenly, one day when you picked up the Word, it was new. It was like a new book. It's like you were in a room and the light came on. Like, what happened? This is what happened. It's all new. It's all miraculous. It's all of God. We believe, we believe because we've been birthed by God into the realm where Christ is real. He's glorious. He's worthy. From God's side, he said, Spirit, birth them. From our side, suddenly we behold preciousness in Christ we never beheld before. If you find yourself like Nicodemus, you're stripped of all your confidence in self, feeling helpless, hopeless. This is so, I mean, this is, this is easy, simple. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you see what pride says? Nope, it's got to be much more difficult than that. Give me something to do. Give me a list of 50 things to do. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You think about if you were in the wilderness, folks, it didn't matter if you were like under the shadow of the thing and it's like up there, or if you were way off on the horizons, you could see that thing way out. It didn't matter if you were close, if you were far. It didn't matter if you looked long, you looked short. It didn't matter if you were an idiot. It didn't matter if you were the most educated, the wisest, if you looked at the thing you lived. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look, you look, children, look at him. How simple. We, we got people that make it want to so many we don't make you want to complicate everything. Oh, look, it doesn't require rocket science here or any lengthy amount of time. A sinner looks, and in a moment, there it is. The moment the sinner believes and he trusts in that crucified God-man, there it is. Trust him for pardon. He at once is going to receive this kind of salvation. That's what happened. They looked at that brazen serpent, and they were healed. Whatever death was imminent because of the poison flowing through their, suddenly it was gone. They were going to live. And Jesus says it's the same way. Same way. Didn't matter if somebody close, far. Didn't matter if you were a child. Didn't matter if you were old. You'll live. Don't look at yourself. That's, you know what? Moses never told the people, go look at yourself in, in a mirror. You have to look outside yourself. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, you can look. And if you look, there's this promise. You'll live. You'll live. That's what Jesus, look unto me. That's what he's saying to Nicodemus. 
Look at me. Look at me in the garden. Look at me. I even prayed God would take this away. This is a cup that was so horrifying to me, but I took it. Because that's what my father's will for me was. I took that cup. And you can look at me. I drank your wrath. And you can watch me after three days. They buried me, yes, but I rose again. Look unto me. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. You can look unto me. I'm victorious. I rose. I'm at my Father's right hand. Poor sinner, look, 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 look. Oh, but don't we have to wait for the Spirit's working? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Sit still and just wait till I feel like God's Spirit is gone? That's not what he says. You have no business with that. Don't you worry about that. You see, Jesus isn't going to let Nicodemus just sit there and think that. Nicodemus, what are you going to do? You're going to be so foolish as to not look at me like one of those Jews would look at that brazen serpent? I'm not asking you to work out your own salvation. You look at me with a look trusting what I've done there. Look to Christ. Look, look. That was Spurgeon. He was saved on that text from Isaiah. That crude preacher said, young man, you have nothing to do but look. And you know what? If you do, you'll be saved. Whenever you talk to somebody about the new birth, second birth, don't stop with what the Spirit does. You better tell them that just as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so Christ must be lifted up. And if you look, you'll live. Don't end the message. Don't be a hyper-Calvinist. Don't let people think. They must stew in their misery until the Spirit blows on them. No, there's Christ. Will you have Him or not? Will you look? Will you not? you turn your back on Him? Look and live. Father, I pray that the simplicity of this gospel, the glories of it, we have every reason to believe that Nicodemus, Nicodemus defended later on, even came with Joseph of Arimathea. If ever reason to believe he's in glory now. These words were not lost on him. He looked, he lived, and he has life forevermore. Lord, I pray that that would be the reality. We must be born again. We must be. Ah, have mercy, Lord just as you had mercy then, just as you had mercy out there in the wilderness. Lord, we deserve to be bitten and to die in our sin. We deserve it. Oh, they cried out for mercy. Look quickly, you are such a God, a sort of God, the kind God who would be moved by the pleas and the cries of men for mercy. How quickly you're moved to mercy staggers us in light of our great wickedness. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.